Praise the Lord Jesus. That's a beautiful song sung by people who don't even know how great he is. But it's really beautiful. Whenever it's sung by someone who knows how great he is. I'm glad we know him that way today. That he's a mighty God. I couldn't serve a God that was so watered down and so puny and so weak the way many have him in the day that we're living in that he really can't demand too much of his people and you know they're so pansy and so weak and he really just hates to ask them to do anything because everybody's so sensitive in the day we're living in everybody's got their feelings here there 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 everybody's feelings is everywhere you know but God can just look at his directly and just scald the hide off of them and tell them what he wants them to do and what he demands of them. And they say, I'll do it. No problem. I'll do it. I believe he's that kind of God, don't you? A mighty God. We greet you today in the name of the Lord Jesus. What an opportunity is for us to be gathered together here today in the great calling that we believe that our Father is doing. The Shidukin is taking place, the match. The Ketubah is being read and declared. We have received a Shosh Bean, the friend of the bridegroom. We're entering into the marriage contract, having it read to us as the people of God. And the Kedushin, the betrothal, has taken place, sealed with the cup of acceptance. I trust that each of us will follow in this life stage to where that we will be able to be presented as a bride to Christ. It's not enough to be espoused. It's not enough to even be saved, as we'd say. It's not enough to even take the cup, press it to your lips, and say, well, I'm going to try I'll see if I can make it work or not. But we must be presented. That's what I want with all my heart. Don't you? And not presented impure or defiled, but presented as a chaste virgin. For our husband is the high priest of all high priests. It's forbidden for the high priest to take a woman which had been touched by a man. But it must be an eternal betrothal by which he has espoused her to himself. In the plan of time, he actually brought it into existence, of course, by the shedding of the blood. But before the foundation of the world, we were already in his mind. Think of it. Before the world ever started, he knew everybody that'd be here today. He knew all the circumstances you'd go through to be here. He knew every word I'd say. He knew every mistake I'd make while I was preaching, which I always do. That's just part of a human preaching. He knew every one of your burdens and your difficulties and trials, and yet he loved us in spite of all of our shortcomings. That's overwhelming, isn't it? You know how we are as humans. We pick friends that'll kind of help us. A lot of folks don't like friends that are heavy to bear and difficult. We don't like dealing with situations where we have to get our hands dirty. But the Lord Jesus looked at us and said, not only have I got to get my hands dirty, I've got to get my entire being dirty filthy. I must become sin in order to redeem them. Aren't you glad he was willing to do so? 
God bless you. So happy to be together today. I hope we don't take these times. I know I keep mentioning to you quite a bit of the different um, saints and churches and so on around the world, but please don't, don't fail to remember our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world uh, that are still unable to assemble under these COVID restrictions that are going on. Uh, some of them, have, as I mentioned to you, have been able to be in church in over a year. Some of our saints here haven't been able to be here for a very, very long time because of their health conditions and very risky for them to come. Please, let's not uh, fail to remember them in prayer. If the Lord lays it on your heart to drop them a card, just to let them know they're not forgotten. You know how we are as humans? We tend to prioritize things constantly and out of sight, out of mind type of thing. But let's pray for our brothers and sisters and those that would love to be here and cannot. We certainly need one another, I believe, don't you? Amen. God bless you. Turn with me today, if you would, to Genesis chapter 24. Also wanted to mention to you, there have been several people that have been asking about <clears throat> being able to contribute to the building fund, and we've come a long way. If you haven't been over, you should go over and drive by and see it. It's yours. It certainly isn't my place. I wouldn't build it for me. But um, Johnson City, you probably don't know it, but Johnson City is one of the strictest states, or cities rather, in the state of Tennessee. They're building codes and many of the things that they require. It's absolutely crazy. If there's any city official here today, I don't want to offend you, but you work for a corrupt bunch. I'm telling you that right now. Because of that, it's put us over our budget in several different aspects because Johnson City has passed so many different things and um, we've not really lifted much of an offering at all, but if you'd like to contribute something, I might lift an offering in a couple of weeks or something, so just so you can be thinking about it and praying about it, we're certainly going to need some help with it all. Now, let's get that out of the way. Let's get to the eternal part. Amen. Genesis 24, 15. And it came to pass before he had done speaking that behold, Rebekah came out who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water, of thy pitcher. And she said, Drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that this scene once again in the spiritual antitype is being lived out even this very service today. How many times down through the ages has this type been lived, expressed, manifested? But we're so grateful, Father, that soon and very soon, we believe, the last ones will draw their water. They will give praise and honor 
to the power that is calling them to you. They will climb up on the camel train, as it were, and they will head toward the change. Father, if there's one here today who's not made that commitment, may you help them. One streaming the service, one that will go back and archive it. Wherever they are around the world, may you move on the hearts of your Rebecca. Bring her to the betrothal that she may be wed to the word of God. Speak to us today, Father, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. As I mentioned to you last Sunday that in types, you have to be so careful with them. Um, Types are certainly not a 100% mirror image of the reality. The Jewish wedding traditions and part of them that are still carried out to this day, part of them merge from here in Genesis. Part of them also come together from Exodus when God called the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And actually many of the rabbis refer to Moses as being the shashbin or the friend of the bridegroom. And the receiving of the law was them receiving their ketubah from God, which was the marriage contract. Them coming out of their uh, bondage, separating the Passover, is much of that symbolism is brought over even to the part of the wedding, of a natural, natural type of the wedding, the Jewish couple today. So <clears throat> let us just review for a little bit before we resume. But part of this is going to be answering to the type of Rebecca, but part of it will not because as it went on with the Jewish wedding tradition, they began to kind of reshape it a little bit. But the initial gathering together of the servant that is sent to forerun this is called the Shidukin or the match. The match is a very important part, of course. We all know that today. A man looking for a wife, a woman looking for a husband. It's something that many take very, very serious, especially if you're a Christian, because you know that you don't have four or five chances at this, but we believe that God's joined people together by marriage and it's their vow. So it's a very serious thing to children of God. But even in this time frame, it was a very important thing. As we can see with Eliezer, must have known that it was quite an awesome responsibility given to him. To be honest with you, I would not have wanted to have been in his shoes as a natural man. So just take it like this, that uh, you've got someone that has a young a young son, a marriageable age, and they desire to pick you, Brother John, or you, Brother Keith, or you, Brother Jack, or one of your brothers, and they're going to give you total, complete control of the woman that this son is going to marry. Now, that would be quite an awesome responsibility, would it not? And they're going to trust you so much, uh, the boy will not text the girl. He will not have a picture of her. He will not have a phone call. He will not have an email. He will not be able to Zoom her. 
He will not be able to do any of these modern type of communications. He will not fly to see her. She will not fly to see him to see if they are compatible. But the whole match, this Shidukim, will be based upon the representative chosen by the Father. Now, I want you to think of what an awesome responsibility that God in type places upon the real true God called ministry. Now, I'm so thankful today that in, in reference to this, I do not have this part, nor does any other God called man. That it's not my part to say, okay, you, 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 and you, and you. No, God does not give us that part, but we simply come to represent him. And we are able to allude to the promises and the redemptive price that is in the ketubah. And we're able to set forth as best as we can the covenant that God wants us to represent. And then he chose those that are his. And if you are his, you will hear something inside of you responding to his invisible call. And something in you will respond. It's awesome enough responsibility as a servant of God to try to stand and project it as close as we can to reality. Every man has his own way, of course, and yet God calls us and gives us that responsibility, but I'm so glad that it is not my responsibility to say, okay, this one can, that one can't. I just trust him and leave that with him. But under this type of the Old Testament, it was initiated, as we've done looked at, the Shidu King, the match, was initiated not by the groom. It was not initiated by the bride, but it was initiated by the father of the groom. And that father of the groom would choose what was called an agent or a shashbin. Now, the shashbin could be the friend of the bridegroom. And a lot of times, the shashbin would actually become what we call today the best man. But part of the time, it would be a lawyer, or it could be an elder, or it could be, in this case of Rebecca, that it was Eliezer. Now, Eliezer, we don't know a lot about him, but we do know that Eliezer was from Damascus. So he was not from Ur, the land of the Chaldees, where that Abraham come from. He was not a Jew in the sense as far as that goes, but he was a servant. And whenever God told Abraham that he was going to uh, make him a great heir and do this and that, he said, Lord, who's going to receive all that I have? I, I, I don't even have an heir of my own body. And my heir is this Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Damascus, of course, still exists today, and it was a city in Syria. But we don't know really too much about Eliezer other than he was not a Jew, but he was one of a Gentile heritage. Now listen, he was a Gentile, and he was from Syria. So he was one that maybe a lot of people would have never chosen him because he was not even of the right DNA. He was not of the right genealogy of Abraham. But history, Josephus gives us a little background that he was actually a slave, well-educated, well-trained, and he was a slave, and he joined Abraham's band some years after Abraham had come out. But he was one of such loyalty. Now listen, this is a type. 
He was one of such loyalty to the cause of the Father that the Father felt he was trustworthy. Now remember, he was a slave, so he was a servant. And yet, this in type, Abraham is going to give him every bit of his wealth. He's going to give him access to camels, to donkeys, to she-asses, to whatever that Abraham had, gold, silver, everything that he would have in his house, this servant is going to have access to it. Now think what kind of man this must be. So this man, was he a man that had his own interest in mind? You would never give him such things. Because what if he got right outside of where Abraham lived and he decided to pawn the donkeys and pawn the she-asses and pawn this and pawn that and leave and never come back again? He could have been a very, very wealthy man. But you see, this man had already proven to his master Abraham that he was a man of notable, trustworthy character. Now you see, this is something that a lot of times the laity do not see and perceive and don't always understand about what God puts his servants through. Many of them, the only thing they see is a preacher get up behind the pulpit and preach and they see him a little bit and they talk to him every now and then and they will counsel with him. They know very little about the trials in his life. They know very little about all that he's been through. But you see, God does not commit things unto the charge of servants. Now, let me say it this way so you'll understand it. That God does not commit the greatest thing that he could, which is souls, into the hands of just anybody. Now, anybody in the day that we're living can get on YouTube and start making videos, and no matter how stupid it is, how ignorant that it is, somebody will follow it because we've got a lot of stupid people in the world. But yet, there's a difference in you having followers on YouTube and Facebook and God actually committing the charge of souls into your care. Now, it's one thing for people to commit money into the charge of a pastor. It's one thing for them to come and, well, we'll let him decide about when we have service and how many times we have our service and his discretion as far as COVID and this and that and the other. All that's part of it. But yet to commit a soul which has eternal value into the hands of a servant of God, it is a great thing. It is a scary thing. It is a very fearful thing to stand and to know that you have the ability to lead folks straight to hell. Now think of it. It is quite a responsibility, whether you're a preacher or not a preacher, to think that your influence, you could influence not only your own soul be lost, but you could be an instrument to lead other souls to hell and God will make you give an account for it. So when Abraham went to choose this agent, which is the Shoshbeam, or the friend of the bridegroom, before he would commit such to him, he wanted to know that this man was trustworthy. My simple advice to you is, friends, if you're gonna follow any man, any woman, any boy, or any girl, 
You might ought to see what God has committed to their charge before you lay your soul into their hands. Now think of it that this man now, he starts on his journey and I imagine even before he got ready to leave, he started feeling the burden of relating the very character of this man. The very burden of describing the wealth of the father. How do you describe the wealth of the father and you don't intrigue a bunch of kingdom hunters or fortune seekers? You see, many portray the gospel in such a way that it attracts fortune seekers, that it attracts, attracts folks that simply don't wanna go to hell but they really do not fully project the character of the bridegroom. Now think of it, this is what lays in the charge of a minister, that a minister has the charge of projecting the kingdom. He has the charge of protecting uh, this law of God, the marriage covenant. He also has the charge of protecting the character of the husband. Now this is why that ministers will stand that day before the Lord Jesus and he will say to many of them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they projected the Lord Jesus as being a weak, puny, powerless God that would allow a people to live any way and do anything as long as they would have a church membership they totally misrepresented the character and nature of the bridegroom and in doing so is blasphemy against his own character. Friends, if you ain't never prayed for preachers, you ought to pray for them in this end time. Now think then that a servant has the capability by representing the character of the man he sent from. So think of that whenever you go to judging about prophets. His brother Branham a prophet? Was Paul a prophet? Was this man a prophet? That man a prophet? Is this a man of God? Or is this someone that you want to follow? Or is that person someone you would want to follow? There ought to be certain things about the individuals that we would see that not only people think they're great and wonderful. People can be deceived. But what does God say about that individual? Now what does God put in their charge and what does God put in their care? Whenever God says in his word that he would vindicate his servants, see if the man you're following is vindicated by God or not. See if the supernatural God, it's one thing to stand in men's words. It's another thing when God himself testifies, hear this man for I am with him. That's something you cannot buy, that's something you cannot barter, is that never failing presence, the parousia of the Lord Jesus. Now watch then, this servant was sent in totally, total, complete trust from the father which was Abraham. Now the friend of the bridegroom has an awesome responsibility to represent both the father and the son. Now listen. 
He has the awesome responsibility to represent both father and son. Now, in this category, as a God called minister, a man of God always has that that responsibility, but he has a a more particular responsibility than did Eliezer, and that is being revelated by God in such a way that he can present both father and son and still not come up with two lords. You see, for those who represent him as being two lords, again, they have blasphemed the deity of God. For those who represent him as being Jesus only, they also have blasphemed the representation of God. So it takes a God called man to be able to represent him in the fatherhood and not another person but himself in the sonship. Now I realize it's a great challenge, but a true God called man can do it. And those that ain't called shouldn't be in the pulpit in the first place. So this agent has the responsibility of being able to go back before the foundation of the world and represent to the bride church that she was in the mind of the father before the father became the son. Amen. And then whenever the ketubah of the Old Testament come out in the types of Israel, a real God called man is able to show the New Testament bride that they were also represented by the Old Testament bride as well. Now, then whenever you get done with it all, it will wind up with what? That same Father God manifested in his own son, which was his own created body. And whenever it all ends and times rolls back into eternity, you will have what? One Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a visible throne and a visible body, and you will have the Father, which is light, hanging over him. Amen. Now notice, this is what the ketubah contained. The ketubah stated the bride price and the promises of the groom and the rights of the bride. Listen to this carefully again. The ketubah stated the bride price, how much that the bridegroom of the father of the bridegroom would be willing to pay for the bride. So it contained the bride price and then it contained the promises of the groom. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that. Now notice, once the ketubah is actually delivered, and the woman would accept the betrothal and they would seal it with a cup of wine, the cup of acceptance, then they were legally married from that day forward. Now they never, they never knew each other as far as sexually until the marriage ceremony, but as far as all legal terms was concerned, they were married. Watch this, now the, the next word there is kiddushim, which is the betrothal. K-I-D-D-U-S-H-I-N, Kiddushin, the betrothal. And then once this was read between them, uh, it was actually sealed with the cup of acceptance. Now, because that uh, the Old Testament there shows in Genesis 24 that Eliezer was sent forth as a type. Now, uh, Isaac never actually got to stand there and agree to this, but his servant represented him. You see, Eliezer, oh Lord, help me. Eliezer actually represented the person of Abraham and the person of Isaac. Now I'll tell you friends, it's a a very, very serious thing 
when God sends a prophet messenger on the earth. Remember when John saw those seven stars and they were in the right hand of the Lord Jesus. That was those church age messengers that was in Jesus' own hand. Now I'm gonna tell you one thing, I, I was not seen there. Your favorite evangelist was not seen there, but it was those church age messengers in the right hand of Jesus Christ. They have an incredible position that God gave to them in so much that the prophet of God would say it this way, you can only serve God on earth as God's servants that sin on the earth interpret God's word to you. You see, it's not good enough that you just sit down and read your Bible and you try to find out your own way to heaven. That's not the program of God. Amos 3, 7 says, surely the Lord God will do nothing until he reveals his secret to the servants, the prophets. That's your Bible. The servants, the prophets. God does not reveal those things to me. God does not reveal them to Brother Darrell or to another evangelist or teacher. It is the office of a prophet. God gives them the charge and it will be whether or not you like it, whether or not this age likes it. It will be the prophet messenger of our age that will present us as a bride to Jesus Christ. Amen. It will be Paul, the prophet messenger of his age that will present the bride of that age and so on consecutively down in the church ages. So they hold a very awesome place in the presence of God to represent him. Now the true God call ministry today that really come out from under the birth of Malachi 4, they have the same voice because it's not the voice so much of Brother Branham. It would not have been the literal voice of Luther or the literal voice of Wesley or any of those great men. It was the voice of God behind their voice. And this is what the carnal people don't understand around the message, that they think to hear the voice of God, you've got to put on a tape. Because to them, the literal voice of God is William Branham. You're an idolater. And you've got that deity spirit on you. Well, praise the Lord. If everything Brother Branham said was the literal voice of God, then why did he have to say, thus saith the Lord at certain times, and certain times he didn't? If it's all the voice of God, then it should all be thus saith the Lord. Well, come on, don't get mad. No, God never sent me to be able to differentiate between the two, but I am called to compare what he said to what he said. And if he made changes, I'm gonna make it right with him. Well, praise the Lord. If he had progression, my Holy Ghost allows me to progress. That's right. But no one, no one will ever take the place of a prophet messenger. I know there's a lot of ministers in the message that feel like they're greater, they're superior, they have greater understanding. It shows me they ain't even got to first base yet. Because if they really did, they know every God called man will come under the headship of God's divine protocol. And the beginning of the protocol is Christ is the head of the church. Out of there comes one God sent messenger. And those who are faithfully taught under that are born themselves under Malachi for birth of the word. They're the only ones that can produce word births to go right on to the body change. 
So it ain't you sitting at home reading your Bible. It's not you taking a concordance and cross-referencing scriptures and trying to figure out your own way to heaven. You only serve God on earth as God's messengers that are sent on the earth interpret God's word to you. And Happy Valley Church said... Now, if you want to argue with that, you go ahead. Whenever you raise all the dead that Brother Brown did, we'll give you 15 minutes before I preach next Sunday. Whenever you cast out devils and whenever you talk with angels and see visions, let me know and then we'll go from there, okay? But until you do, I'm going to keep on preaching what I know God has spoke back up. That's right. Now, in this, whenever they would come with the, with the, uh, the great announcement to merge into the marriage contract and the groom and the bride would both hear the betrothal from the shashbim. Then they would take the cup and one cup only. They would take the cup and the bridegroom would drink of it first and he would hand it to the bride and it was signifying the groom's willingness to pay the bride price. It also signified that from this time on that the groom would accept full responsibility for his bride. Amen. And also the bride is accepting her responsibility or her willingness to enter into the marriage contract. So it was actually a contract or a covenant. The bride accepted his or her, rather the bridegroom, his part, the bride hers. And then they would seal it with a cup of acceptance and they would drink from this wine. So from that time forward, they are considered to be a legal couple. But the marriage was not consummated until, of course, the wedding night, at the time of the wedding. Now, unlike Rebecca, the bride in the Jewish tradition resided with her parents until they actually were joined together under the hoopah. Now here, as I told you, that this is actually a type. So Rebecca, whenever she agreed to the marriage contract, she left her brother, her brother, whoever more, there at her home, and she went away with him. Now remember, you gotta keep these types straight. So she did not type it, but yet the anatype being us, we accept the Lord Jesus, and we're still here with our mother in the earth. We're still here abiding on the earth, living in earthly bodies, bearing a divine testimony in an earthly tabernacle, and we are waiting for the time when we will join our husband for the second cup of wine. You see, it's especially interesting, I think, in that the ketubah, when the groom would join together, I'm sure you've noticed it before, but isn't it amazing the, the term or the identification that the man takes? That the man is called, even in this modern day, that the man is called the bridegroom. Bridegroom. Well, well I, I, shouldn't man be in, 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 you know, shouldn't man be first in to be groom bride? What a while the man would be called by the title of his spouse to be? Bride, groom. Why not just call him the groom? Why call him the bridegroom? You see, this union is going to be consummated under the headship of this man. Now that does not mean that the man is a bully and he's a dominating male chauvinist type of thing, but the man faces great responsibility. Oh, he does. You see, the complete provision of everything the bride will need from this time on is placed upon the bridegroom. 
and they will enter into this covenant relationship. Now the second cup of the ketubah will actually be drained under the chuppah. And after they, they go and they, they just, it's a very, very brief exchange of their vows together. And then the friend of the bridegroom follows the groom and the bride as they would go into the marriage tent or the bride's tent. They would go in there and whenever the consummation is completed, the bridegroom actually comes to the door of the tent and he speaks to his friend and his friend makes a great proclamation that the, oh my, that the wedding has now been consummated for the bride and the groom have become one flesh and it will be through the shout of the messenger. Amen. It is through the shout of the messenger that the announcement is made or the bride call will come through the revealing of the Son of Man. Now you see people that look at it without understanding that why in the world we need a prophet for? Because the Lord Jesus wanted to make the bride call through that administration. And the bridegroom would speak to the friend as he stood there at the door and he would patiently await and then the bridegroom would come forth and say, it has been done. It has been completed. All things are now ready. Hallelujah. Then what would happen? It would begin a week of festivities. And it would begin the time now the bride and the groom come out and the great festivities began. And then what do you have? The marriage supper of what we would call the lamb. Then the second cup of the ketubah contract is now drank together. Oh, glory to God. Because they are sitting at the table. Now what goes on? It is the reception or the marriage supper. Now the covenant contract of what the bride and groom enter into, let me share this with you, is that the groom, one of the things that he's going to do is that the groom is responsible for the hoopah. And the hoopah is the small tent by which the bride and the groom gathered together also with the priests as they would stand under there. The mother and father of both sides would stand on the outside. But under the hoopah is the bride, the groom, the minister, and the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands there under the hoopah and he attests to the virginity of the bride. He will stand there and give his word. Sir, I say to you, no man has touched her. Glory to God. He's actually held responsible for her purity. Now the groom also accepts the responsibility and the contract that he will not only make the hupah, but he will build their future home. And he alone, not the bride's father, not the bride's brother, but it is the bridegroom. He's responsible. And this would be built, of course, on the father's property. 
And the home must reflect the honor, the wealth, and the great person that the father was. And the bride, you know, her background, as far as when she was poor or not, her father and mother being poor had nothing to do with it. The home itself must reflect the greatness and the wealth of the bridegroom's father. Now you might sing the song all you want to, build me a cabin in the corner of glory land, but a cabin in the corner of glory land would not reflect the almighty God, this greatness. I know that a city like we are familiar with in Revelation 21 is more than what our minds can comprehend, that it would have streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl and all these things. But don't you see, the Lord Jesus in the form of sonship has been there for 2,000 years creating this city, where at? On the Father's property. There in heaven, now let me remind you this morning, there has never been one demon that has set one foot inside that new city. Now, in what we know today as the heaven of heavens, Satan has been allowed to go before the throne of God, and he still is to this very hour. Demons are able to go before the throne of God and charge the elect and accuse them and so on. But there's never been one devil that's ever been able to set their foot inside that new bride city. But you see, the Lord Jesus, he said, I'll go away to prepare this place for you. So he's been there for many, many thousands of years, creating this beautiful bride city. Notice St. John 14 too. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now let's bring it over to the future home. Notice that Jesus said in St. John 14, go and prepare a place. Oh, what will it look like? Did you ever think now, bride, what it will look like? It is prepared and designed by the divine architect. What will that city look like? Now we're going to talk about it for a few minutes. The divine architect has prepared it, designed it, and look, he has designed it with tender hands for his beloved bride. What's it gonna look like? Can you imagine a man marrying a wife that's able, how he builds and puts every little thing just exactly to her touch, just what she would like, amen, oh my. Now the divine architect has designed the new city where he will live with his bride just to her touch. No wonder the apostle said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it ever entered the heart of man. Let's see if we can probe into it for just a moment. See what it's gonna look like. The divine architect has designed this for his beloved. See, oh, what a place it must be when divine nature, a divine architect has designed for a divine attribute that's been divinely predestinated by a divine God who is the author of divine life. This sounds like a divine quote to me. 
Praise be to God. A divine architect, a divine God who has, oh my, designed for a divine attribute, who is divinely predestinated. Don't you understand, my friend? We're not talking about just our human heritage. We're not talking about our flesh, but we're talking about something that is beyond this right here. It is, oh my, it is in the great eternal presence of almighty God. Remember, it's not going to be heaven. It comes down from heaven. It's built on the Father's property up in heaven. I know this seems almost unbelievable. We see house movers, and we see them go in, and they have these great big long high beams of steel, and you know, all these axles of wheels under them and they start jacking up the house and, you know, moving it and they're gonna move it. Can you imagine moving a city that is 1,500 miles square? They don't make a cat dozer big enough. They don't make a house mover big enough. But the Lord Jesus, if he can build it, he can move it. Hallelujah. <laughs> If he can build it, how in the world? It's beyond human imagination. Scientists, are you imagine a, an architect if, we, if he would be able to hear this today say, you people are crazy. How in the world? And he'd try to run it scientifically and try to figure out how much all that gold would weigh and how much all that silver would weigh and all them walls of jasper. And I say, you all are a bunch of nuts to believe that somehow he can move that city. Look, pal, I believe he can make it, he can move it, he can relocate it. If he can do that, he can make a way for me to get in it. I know it may look totally impossible, but if he can do that, he can make a way for me to walk down them same streets of gold because he is a divine architect and I believe with all of my heart we have been divinely predestinated to be a part of this divine city and let me go ahead and say it, there ain't enough devils in hell to stop the bride of Jesus Christ from walking down the streets of that future home. Remember, it's not going to be heaven. Listen, friends, you're not going to heaven to live in heaven forever. You come from here, your body. You're associated as an earthly being and your home will come right back here. It comes down from heaven. It's a dwelling place a place to dwell in, to take up his abode. Like it was John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 21. He saw it descended. So what was it? It was not Peter. It was not James. It was not Bartholomew, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Who was it? A prophet of God on the Isle of Patmos and God showed him one of the most profound things that has ever been viewed by vision 
of a man. Can you imagine God carrying away this man and him seeing an entire city of such a vast expanse that is 1,500 miles that way, that way, that way, and that way, and 1,500 miles like this, leaning up on this angle, and John stood there by vision or setting wherever he was, and he saw this whole city of God, of gold and silver, my, and all the walls of Jasper and the gates of pearl, and John saw that whole thing coming right down. What was it? The bridegroom, amen, had prepared it on the father's property, but he's moving it down to the earth. Why? He will be king of the earth, and his knowledge shall cover the earth as the waters do the sea. The blessed of the Lord will go in and out of that city. Praise God. Why? Because our bridegroom assumed the responsibility when he gave us the new covenant or the new testament, the ketubah by which we are baptized into, I accept full responsibility for you, my bride. I'll get you there. I'll save you. I'll sanctify you. I'll fill you with the Holy Ghost. And if your body dies, I'll raise you up. If you're alive, I'll give you rapturing power. I assume full responsibility. In reality, the bride's part seems quite simple compared to his. Part of the bride's agreement in the ketubah was this. She would not become distracted. She would give total undistracted devotion to her groom. Now, that's not always easy especially when you can't see it. Now, if every day you went to eat breakfast, Brother Jim, you and Sister Lynn, and you had your little yogurt and your little fruit or your toast or your cereal, whatever it is that you eat, and Jesus was sitting out there at the end of the table, you got in your truck to come over here to the library, and Jesus was right there on the passenger side. You come into the library, and Jesus had a chair behind the, the little workbench back there. You brothers would go to your work. Brother Fred, you'd go to paint, and there was Jesus standing right there with you on the ladder. My, wouldn't it be something? You know what? The bride, listen to this, don't misunderstand me. The bride does not need a corporal body to be able to give to him the allegiance that he requires. The bride does not need a vengeful God or even an angel of God standing there with a sword constantly drawn over to make them live right. This is part of the bride's responsibility in the marriage covenant. She wants to give him undivided attention. She wants to give him undistracted devotion. And Satan will do everything he can to distract our devotion to the Lord Jesus. He will send false prophets. He will send false teachers. He will send worldliness. He will send COVID. He'll send the flu, the bird flu, the swine flu, whatever more that he can do. What for? For one thing, and that is to get you as a member of the bride to be able to get your devotion distracted away from the Lord Jesus. I don't mind telling you this last year has been a hard year for all of us. You know what it's all about? To get our devotion, our attention,
attention, our commitment, our love distracted away from our bridegroom. Because Satan knows you can't make a city, you can't make gates of pearl, that's not your responsibility. You cannot make yourself sinless, you cannot make yourself perfect, but you can keep yourself devoted to the Lord Jesus. One of the distractions that we must constantly deal with is distractions of false teachers and false prophets. Second Timothy 1.7, or John rather, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ, this is a false prophet right here that does not say that Jesus Christ is, not has. Every form of Christianity will say Jesus Christ has, past tense. Read your Bible. Right, brothers? Notice who confessed not that Jesus Christ is, is, is. Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Notice the way that John describes him. He does not use the human name that the angel told Mary to call him by. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. But he uses the crowned human, human and divine. Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Well, praise the Lord. Let me go ahead and remind you again today. Jesus Christ is coming the flesh. I know, because I'm one of them, he's coming. Amen. The parousia of Jesus Christ is still on the earth today. Oh, glory to God. Who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Oh my goodness. So you see an antichrist is not just someone. No, I don't believe in God. That's not an antichrist anyway. I don't believe there is such a God. That's not an antichrist. But an antichrist is someone who takes the name of Christ and who takes a portion of the teaching of Christ, but against the very principle of the bridegroom. You see, only true word-born sons of God, ministers can be able to preach this in reality and say that he didn't come 2,000 years ago. My, that's been preached for 2,000 years. And John was addressing it then. There was already people there that was pointing backwards to what he'd done and ignoring what he was doing. So they said, well, he done it years and years ago. This is written around 96 AD, something like that. And they was already pointing back to 60 years ago. He done this, he done that. Oh, if he was only here today. Oh, if he was only here, John said, what? Don't you recognize that's the spirit of Antichrist to point in the back and point backwards? Let's not point backwards, let's point to where he is. Amen. Aren't you glad you can say, Jesus Christ is come in my flesh. Look to yourselves. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, 
but that we receive a full reward. So what will be something that the bride under her part of the ketubah must constantly deal with? Undistracted devotion. Sickness, heartaches, troubles, difficulties, problems in your home, problem with your children, problem on the job. Think of it, friend. It's not really that complicated. It's all about one thing. For you to distract your loyalty, your reverence, your devotion to the Lord Jesus. And if he cannot do it through false teachers and false prophets, he will do it through things of the world or worldliness. To distract your devotion away from Christ. Notice this 1 John 2.15. Love not the world. Now this word, as you know, in the Greek here is actually not the earth, not the planet, but it is the cosmos, which is the world order. So it's the government, it's the politics, it's all the social things that Satan tries to do. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now we need to use the things of the world and love people, but a lot of folks love things and use people. You've got it backwards. You use things and love people. Come on now. Notice this, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice this is part of what the father is going to give to the daughter slash bride. This is the father's love gift. This is the father's love gift, which is part of your dowry that the father would give to his daughter. Well, you see, it just so happens that the one who sent the messenger down to find the bride is also your daddy. So you're both bride slash and daughter at the same time. Glory to God. So the body, the father of the body of the Lord Jesus is the father of you as well. So this is why that he married his sister in the interrape way that had come together by interpolating it together. You have both identities that you are daughter and you are bride. Amen. Very same person all the time so he can be father and son. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the bride also would enter in, her part of the ketubah was to enter in a constant, constant observation and waiting and believing that the bridegroom was gonna come. So she's to live under this anticipation of a rapture. It's strange, isn't it? The... Bridegroom didn't actually know what day he was going to get his bride. Only the father knew that. So the bridegroom was getting the house ready, the hoopah ready, getting everything ready. The bride was keeping her, her devotion, her consecration to the groom. And then one day the father would look at everything. He'd survey it all. He'd look at every bit of it. And he'd speak to his son and say, go get your wife. Now, he didn't text her, didn't have email, Zoomer, or whatever. But what would happen was the friend of the bridegroom would go out and someone would accompany him with a shofar. You know what a shofar is? Ram's horn. So someone would go with the friend of the bridegroom 
And they go to blow on the horn. And the bride didn't know exactly what day or what hour. But when she heard the shout, the voice, and the trumpet, (laughs) she knew it's got to be in close. Don't you remember the parable that Jesus gave us in Matthew 25, 1? The kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins. Five are wise and five are foolish. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Remember that? While the bridegroom tarried. Now, why was the bridegroom tarried? Because the father had not told him to go yet. Isn't it amazing that the Lord Jesus said himself that he didn't even know when he was coming back. It was only in the time of the father. Oh, praise God. So they, they did not know, but keep, please keep Matthew 25 in its proper perspective because when you look at it in reality, you're dealing with the virgins which are called to the marriage, not the bride. I figured it'd sting you a little bit. You see, the virgins were those who were around the bride, but the bride was not even mentioned in Jesus' parable. They are the attendees of the wedding. So here goes the bridegroom and he, he's going out. But before him, while he's, he's, he's descending, he sends a messenger. And the messenger goes with a shofar, someone blowing the shofar all along the way. Now they've done announce it. Uh, John Doe, his son Jim's is fixing to marry old sister so-and-so over there. And we don't know. But now you see, this is very strange to us because it's not the way we do it. But in that time when Jesus quoted this in Matthew 25, they would have understood that perfectly, Brother Jim, because they no doubt had waited many times. And they'd sat there and they'd wait and they'd wait. And you had to be ready just like that. You didn't have six weeks or two months or a year to get ready. You had to stay ready. So if you're milking the cows, you had to be ready. If you're cooking supper, you had to be ready. Just drop your cornbread and beans and taters and head to the wedding. You had to be ready. Oh, glory to God. You did not know exactly the day or the hour when the Son of Man would come. Notice in Matthew 24, 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour. Isn't that amazing? It didn't say what year or what month or what week, but what hour your Lord just come. But know this, if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would have come, he would have watched and would have not suffered the house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready for in such an hour, an hour, 60 minutes, such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Now, the bride then is also part of, her part of the ketubah is to live a life that is set apart, sanctified. And the sanctification goes unto her husband. Now, let's, let's read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse two. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Really, I don't think I could understand this in the first person that Paul did. I don't think you can understand it as a sheep, how I feel it as a shepherd. I really don't think an evangelist feels it in the same way that a shepherd does. 
You know, jealousy, the Bible tells us jealousy is cruel as a grave. That's human jealousy. To partake of divine jealousy is a divine impartation of the Almighty. Now, there are many preachers that are jealous of their church, but they're jealous because another preacher would come in and the people would enjoy them. That ain't godly jealousy. Or somebody has more streamers than they do. Or somebody has a bigger church than they do. That ain't godly, that's evil. But there is a godly jealousy that God call men, every aspect of the fivefold ministry have, and that is, they, listen carefully, they, they enter the word here that Paul uses, it's nowhere found in any place else in the New Testament, but it's actually the word that he uses, jealousy, is the type of jealousy that a father would have toward his daughter and also the same type that a husband would have toward his wife. So Paul, God actually allowed Paul to enter into a feeling of such jealousy that it was divine jealousy. And God was letting him experience something. Now listen, friends, if, if I believed that it was all right for our sisters to wear makeup and cut their hair off and wear pants and, you know, it was okay for the brothers to wear skirts if they wanted to. And, uh, you know, the, the, the men wanted to have sex changes and all that was right according to the word of God. I'd be preaching sex change on Wednesday. Well, if it was fine and dandy, sure I would be. Well, if it was okay for us to all get drunk, then well, I'll buy the first round this evening after church. But it ain't. And you see, sometimes you as sheep totally misunderstand my position as well as other ministers because first of all, you're not called. And secondly, you do not have that divine deposit inside of you that makes you jealous over God's sheep, not with human jealousy but you want them to be sanctified. You want them to be holy. So if you see worldliness creeping in the church, it's something that moves on your heart. If you see people, you know, they're getting cold and they're getting indifferent for whatever reason and they're doing things that are not right, it's not anger. It's not human madness that you look and thought, I'm so mad at them, it's not that. But you start feeling this jealousy and you're jealous over what they're doing to their husband, not you, but their husband, the Lord Jesus. And you look and say, oh no, don't, don't do that. Please don't do that. You're flirting with the world. You're, you're taking on the world. You're wearing stuff on your eyes and, and you're wearing clothes that a sister should not wear and brothers behaving in a way they should not behave. And you begin to feel that raise up in you. What is it? It is a godly jealousy that you are jealous over the flock of God. Numbers chapter 25, verse six. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought into his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation. Well, this old boy sure wouldn't be considered to have love in this day. And took a javelin in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Now we're talking, not talking about heathens. We're talking about people of Israel. Now how would you judge this man? 
before you do, let me tell you how God judged him. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel because he was zealous for my sake among them. Now I wonder if I announced Wednesday night Phineas would be preaching at the church. Oh, Phineas is going to be holding us a two-week revival. Carol, you would be with me, right? Me and you. All right, that's two of us. You'd be here? All right. That's four more. Now listen how God looked at this. This, this man, he would be classified a murderer. Uncaring, unforgiving, especially in this day of acceptance and tolerance. Now he could use the example and said, Moses married a Midianite. Why couldn't I marry one? Because remember, God used his prophets for many types that are not our example. Don't sit there and look goo goo eyed at me. God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute. So am I going to start telling our young brothers they can go down to a whorehouse and marry a prostitute? God told Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot. He told Ezekiel to mix cow manure in his bread. Why? Signs, symbols. Moses' marriage was not a symbol for everybody else to follow. God was doing a type. But remember, types are not always realistic when they're carried out. And look how God looked at this man. He was zealous for my sake among them that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. So God is so jealous. He's so angry. And one man moves under that. Isn't it amazing? That was Moses, the prophet of God. There was Aaron. That was the Levites. That was all these other people. But this one man of the priesthood, this one preacher, as we'll say, actually got an anointing and started feeling jealous for God. God called his name. Wow. Notice this. Wherefore say, behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. And he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement. Wow. An atonement. I thought atonements was only made to the blood of a lamb or a turtle dove or a pigeon. But here is a man making an atonement because the very jealousy of God anoints this man. I don't mind telling you, friends, I'm jealous not only of Happy Valley Church, I'm jealous of this message. And whenever it comes under attack and onslaught, there's something that rises up in me. Oh, I know some preachers just kind of, you know, slap people on the hands. That's, that's, not, that's not the jealousy I feel. I want to drag out my javelin. 
I want to drag out my sword. I'm not looking for no name in heaven, but you see, I not only got baptized in the Holy Ghost, I got baptized into this type of feeling right here. I know you don't understand me. I'm very misunderstood in the message. People don't understand why. I know all of that. We can only be what God's made us. But I am very zealous of my God. I am very zealous of my God's message and my God's prophet because it is my prophet as well. And when I hear him attacked and see him run down by people that ain't got enough sense to even know which door to go in and out of, many of them don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. Come on now. They look like the world, act like the world, and they're going to tell us how God ought to run his program. I'm very, very jealous after God's word and God's prophet. Anybody in here jealous with me? Or you just want to let the world do whatever they do and run us down? Shame on you. Let me close with this, 1 Kings 19, 9. And he came thither into the cave. This is Elijah and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said unto him, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For thy children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And he, I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. I don't believe God wants us to fist fight. I don't believe God wants us to fight these spiritual battles by flesh. But is there anybody left who's willing to take a stand for what's right? Not only for William Branham, not for Happy Valley, forget Happy Valley, I'm talking about for Almighty God. I ain't talking about Donnie Reagan. Don't take your stand so much as Donnie Reagan. I'm a mortal like any other mortal. And I'll let you down and disappoint you. But take your stand with Jesus Christ. He'll never let you down. Have we got enough gumption about us, enough guts about us to stand and say, I am jealous for my Lord. So you see a brother, sister, a friend of yours or whatever doing something and wrong. You may not be called to go correct them by the word of God, but there's one thing you can do. Get down on them prayer bones of yours and begin to call their name out to the Lord Jesus. Don't get on Facebook and tell everybody else what they're doing. Call their name before Almighty God. Don't tell your friend. Don't tell your second best friend, your third best friend, but call Lord God. You see my sister. I've noticed she's getting cold. I've seen my brother, Lord. I notice they're getting cold. Lord, stir your people. God, get a hold of your people. Anybody want to go with me? Anybody willing to say, Lord God, help me, God, baptize me to feel that way, Lord, that I am jealous for your bride. I'm jealous when I see preachers flirting with the bride and they want the bride to bear their seed. I am jealous when I see Reaganites or whatever kind of ites around the message instead of sons and daughters of God. Oh, sure, we've got our favorite preachers and always will have but you don't want to be a Donnie Reagan. You don't want to be a Tim Pruitt. You don't want to be a Ron Spencer. You want to be a son and daughter of Almighty God. I am jealous over you. Oh, Jesus. Why would Paul say this? Because he considers himself to be a friend of the bridegroom. He had betrothed them to Christ. Now friends, whether you get mad or whether you understand it or don't, it's, it's up to you. Peter could not say these words. James never said this. Even John, the beloved, never said this. Who said it? The church age messenger. 
Now, as he makes the proclamation of the betrothal, those who are faithfully taught to follow on in that word and born of the Spirit of God, they will continue carrying the same voice. It's not my ministry. Don't you understand? It's not, it's not the ministry of Tim Pruitt. It's not the ministry of Donnie Reagan and Darrell Ward. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ continuing in his church. So it's not my voice. It's not Brother Tim's voice, Brother Ron's voice, whoever your favorite preacher is. It's not that voice you want to hear. It's the voice of God thundering through the ages. Oh, I'm so glad we've heard it. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads together if you would. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, as we stand here today in this awesome presence, Lord God, we ask you that you would help us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand our responsibility in the marriage contract. We're so busy in trying to do your work. We try to perfect ourselves. We try to make ourselves this and make ourselves that and make ourselves something else, which is not even our place anyway. It's yours. Yes, we ought to possess our vessel in sanctification, but how can I ever make myself perfect? How can I ever make myself sinless? Instead of us doing what we're supposed to do, we're meddling in your business. But here's what you want us to do. You want us to be faithful, true, undivided attention, undivided expectation. Oh, sure, our sisters make cornbread and beans and fry maters and taters and all that sort of thing. Our brothers go out and work. The prophet uses that example in God in simplicity and said, just this common worker that would pack his lunch bucket under his arm and go out and work on a job and God would do something out of his life. Why? Because it's God in simplicity. But we think we've got to have a following, an audience. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our vanity. If we would live our lives the way they're supposed to be lived, we wouldn't need Instagram. We wouldn't need YouTube. We would be a living article. But since we can't do it with our life, we have to do it with our mouth. Let my life speak, Lord God. Help us, I pray, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help every God-called man around the world to be jealous in the right way. We are your representatives. And I would only say this because the Word says it so. God call men are your representatives upon the earth. No really God call men wants the position of a prophet. I got enough sense to know what a dangerous thing that is. But Lord, we do want to do what you've called us to do. My little portion is so small compared to many great ones. I'm just one little small pebble among a lot of big boulders. But Lord God, I want to do it with all my heart and my strength. As I get older, my strengths will become Weaker and weaker, I know that. But it doesn't mean my zeal, my desire has to. I like to pace myself, and I won't be able to preach maybe as often and as frequent. 
but let my zeal be the same. May I be like Caleb of old, that even after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, I'll be able to say, give me my mountain. Help each of us here today, Father, whether we're young, middle-aged, or old. We pray for those, Lord, that can't be here today. How I miss them. Thinking about different ones this morning, Lord, that have not been able to be in church with us. God, I pray you'd help them. Minister to them today, Lord Jesus. Father, help some of these young people to understand zeal and righteousness for Christ is not just an old person option. I'm glad you give it to me when I was a boy. Just a boy. I was as ignorant as I could be. But I had zeal even then. I desired to do something. Help us, Lord Jesus. Father God, speak to the heart of every individual today. Help us to lay aside paving streets of gold. They're already done. Help us to lay aside hanging gates of pearl. They're already hung. Help us to lay aside trying to perfect ourselves and all of that. Let us move over into our part of the ketubah that we can give you anticipation, expectation, full consideration, Lord God. We love you with all of our hearts, Lord Jesus. Help us today, I pray, Lord. How many wants to be that type of person today? Every child of God. Now remember, men, women, boys, girls. We can all stand on the same plateau when it comes to this. Undistracted devotion to our Lord. You see, whenever a man and a woman would make them vows, as he would say, Be thou consecrated unto me according to the law of God and of Moses. Be thou consecrated. And the word consecrated was the same word that was used to sanctify and consecrate the priests. So the priests couldn't eat certain things. They couldn't wear certain clothes. They couldn't do certain things because they were consecrated, set aside. You see, this is what the church people don't understand. What difference does it make what you wear? What difference does that make? It shows they don't even understand the ketubah requirement. The ketubah requirement is that we are a consecrated people, which means we are set aside. And we possess our vessels in sanctification. So we refuse to give our devotion. We refuse. Oh, yes, we can enjoy some of the things of the world that's not sin. But our devotion, our sold-out devotion, belongs to Jesus Christ and Him alone. You remember that last phase of the vision that the prophet tells for the first time in the masterpiece? When he was sitting up there in that shopping center and he wasn't even sure when he started telling it what it meant. But he preaches the message, the masterpiece. And he said, I'm going to tell you a vision that I had. And it tells how many days ago it was whenever he had it. And he said, I'm not even sure I can interpret it. But he saw a bride come walking. And there was an angel, a being, sitting there by him. And he never saw his appearance. But he heard his voice. And he said, you'll now see the preview of the bride. 
And here they come, long hair, dressed in different clothes, different, like different nationalities, walking right in line with the word. Remember it? And then he said, now you'll see the church. And when the church came, he saw them as they were holding, looked like pieces of newspaper that had been cut like ribbons and strips of newspaper. Now remember in a vision, so it was a symbol. So this was only on the lower part of her body. It was a female. The upper part of her body was completely nude. She was dancing to rock and roll music. Short bobbed hair and makeup. Here was one after another after another and they were led by a witch. And he said, oh God, oh God, is that the church? Is that the church? Oh God, why is he moaning so? He knows his position. Is that the best I could do to present a bride to Christ? And here he is looking at them, but the voice said, kept watching them, kept watching them, going out, going out. When they got out so far, they stepped off. And he heard them screaming as they went down. He said he felt sick. Can you imagine a prophet out of this dimension, yet in this dimension at the same time, started feeling sick in his body. And the voice said, oh God, oh God, he said, oh God. But the voice said, the bride must come back in view again. And he looked, and here come that same bride marching right along in harmony with the word. And when she passed the reviewing stand, she was looking right at him and that heavenly being as they walked by. Now they take off and as they go on up through there, keep marching up and he said the last two or three right in the back, they might have been German or Asian looking. Now they had on different clothes and he said two or three of them just got out of step and he screamed, get back in line! Get back in line! And he comes to himself in the vision screaming that, get back in line. Now, when he tells it, the Lord God gives him the interpretation right there. He said, that witch is nothing but this world council of churches. And he said, that dirt was in denominations that that bride seed fell into. But he said, glory to God. Now, remember, he just preached the masterpiece sermon. If you haven't heard him, I'll do you good. July 1964. Just preached the masterpiece sermon. And he preached that the alpha was the omega. He said, there she was. I just now caught it in my sermon. She was alpha and Omega. And he said, notice, Jesus said he was Alpha and Omega, but he never said nothing about in between. Don't you understand, Luther, Wesley, Pentecost, never had that full image, but the Alpha bride and the Omega bride. Don't you understand where we are? We are the Omega. First and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The alpha has become the omega. Lord, can you imagine a prophet of God using titles that was only identifying the Lord Jesus? Why, she is him. Praise be to God. Praise be. I mean, it wants to stay in line. I want to stay in line. Thank God for grace if we do get out of line that the voice of God through the Holy Ghost will scream, get back in line, Jack. Get back in line, Jerry. Get back in line, Fred. Get back in line, Donnie. Thank God. 
Why? It's in the ketubah. Little children, I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, which is Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the perpetuation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Aren't you glad I've needed it? Can we just bow our heads? I'm not going to ask you to lay hands on each other, but would you not pray for yourself so much? What would you pray for that person standing by you? Maybe someone that the Lord would put on your heart. Maybe your husband, a friend, your wife, a daughter. Oh, Lord Jesus, we believe we're living in that omega part of the vision. So short hair, makeup, earrings, naked from the waist up, all that identified the worldly church. And they went down into the tribulation period. Oh, Lord God, we don't want that. We want to be sanctified unto you. We want undistracted attention. Lord God, we want undisturbed devotion given to you, Lord God. May the word of the hour be kept pure in our hearts. We know it has to do with purity and defilement. The whole thing. Our whole walk is simplified in two things, purity and defilement. For you said, though, that's in the book of Revelation, those that have defiled their garments, they'll be judged. But you told the overcomers, because you have walked a holy life, a pure life, sanctified, separated, you shall walk with me in white, for you are worthy. You've kept yourself unspotted from the world. But today, Christianity, they curse like the world, they drink like the world, they smoke like the world, they dress like the world, they look like the world. They look just like them, act just like them, and say they're Christians. What's set apart about them? What is sanctified? Lord Jesus, may we be as consecrated as was the high priest. May we be as consecrated as whenever the priests would go before the Lord and the Lord God told Moses, you take Aaron and wash him. So here was Aaron, the high priest, given a bath by his prophet brother. Hallelujah. Then he was consecrated. He was anointed. He was set aside. He wore special clothes that nobody else wore. Special colors. They made special oils by the apothecary that nobody could have. Even the children of Israel could not even have a fragrance in their home that was similar to that perfume. It was so consecrated for a consecrated man. Hallelujah. So this consecrated man put on consecrated clothes, anointed with consecrated perfume, walked into a consecrated place, was allowed to see the Shekinah of the glory of God. But if that man had not lived a consecrated life, they had a pomegranate and a bell on the bottom of his garment. And if they didn't hear that bell, he had a rope tied around his waist. And they listened and they listened. If there was no noise, they would pull him out. He was a dead man because you had killed him for living a unholy life. Oh, Jesus, may we be consecrated unto you. Grant it, Lord God. I pray you'd minister, Lord Jesus, to your children today. I know I've mentioned them several times today, Lord, but my heart just 
goes out to the different ones that can't come. Lord, we love them, we miss them. Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Father, I know not even been able to have church on Saturday. I feel like my whole week is tore upside down, just missing one service. Some of these poor saints have missed weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend. Help them, Lord God. Minister to them strengths, Lord, I pray. Not only ours here, Lord, but around the world, in Africa and India, China, much greater outbreak in India, South Africa, Lord, the different variants of this things that's breaking out down there. And the government's tightening up on some of them. Lord God, deliver your children. You said, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves, I will hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. Granted, I pray, Lord Jesus, blessed be the name of the Lord God. Father, help me. Help me. I can stand for you, Lord. Help me. I'll be jealous for the Lord God. I'll be jealous for this message. I'm willing not only to preach it, but to be criticized, ostracized, made fun of life that. That's all right. That comes with it. But let you take note of our zeal as you did Phineas of old. Hallelujah. In this age of compromise, may there be people around the world that will not compromise on the truth. Granted, I pray, Lord Jesus. I'll stand for Jesus and let the world go by. I'll claim His promise. He will supply. We're gonna walk together for and night. I'm gonna stand for Jesus and let the world, everybody, you believe it with all your heart. Carol wants to rededicate her life to the Lord Jesus today. Wants a greater understanding of the message. Wants to be a part of the bride. Lord Jesus, Carol and I sat in our office the other night and heard the bubbling joy coming out of our sister's heart. We were both just so, so happy. Lord God, as she stands here today, I cannot help her. Brother West cannot help her. The church cannot help her. But we simply do our part, and that is bring her into your presence, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, would you help our sister and just minister to her today? You see where she's at? You see where she wants to be? May the Spirit of God be with her and lead her, Lord, I pray. (laughs) Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus Christ, may you minister to her right now, Lord God, I pray. In the name of Jesus, take her, Lord. 
Oh, may it be that daily walk as she was sitting there talking to us the other day about reading her Bible and oh, how she loved you and just wanted to read your word. And I thought, what a wonderful thing when a person falls in love with the author of the book, even the book becomes new. Lord Jesus, minister to her, I pray. Give her strength, Father, in her walk with you, we ask. In Jesus' name. Praise God. In this world filled with pleasure, we're tested and tried. The more we have here on earth, the less we're satisfied. The only thing that's lasting comes from on high. I want to stand for Jesus and let the world go by. I'll stand for Jesus, let the world go by. I'll claim His promise. He will supply. We're gonna walk together, my Lord and I. I'm gonna stand for Jesus and let the world go by. When it's time to depart from this old body of mine I don't want to own one thing I can't leave behind I want to be free to sail through the sky that's why I'm standing for Jesus and let this world go by I'm gonna stand for Jesus let the world go by I'll claim his promise he will supply we're gonna walk together imagine in your heart now I don't know exactly who when and where it happened 
somewhere after your conversion, maybe sitting in a pew one night, maybe after you entered into a certain stage of sanctification, but you accepted the bridegroom's call upon your heart and you entered into this covenant with him. You actually stood with Jesus and joined into an invisible union and said, Lord, I'll serve you. I want to go with you. And when you did that, he accepted the responsibility on your part. Brother Jim, no doubt he stood with you so many times when you thought, how in the world did I ever get through it? It was because you stood for him. He stood with you. Now, before long, the last standing up is going to take place. We got all kinds of folks claiming they're the bride, they're the church, they've got the truth, so on and so on and so on. But you see, the Lord Jesus will stand with his bride and rapture her on that resurrection morning. He will prove who is his. Don't you want to stand with him now? So he will stand with you on that day. Can we sing this together? Sing it for us. Let's just sing it before we go. Think of what an opportunity has been given to us as we have been made, oh my, the betrothed of God. God said in the book of Hosea, I will betroth thee to me forever under an everlasting covenant. We don't want to be like Israel in Ezekiel 16 too, but we want to be the fulfillment of Hosea, that we are betrothed to him forever. Let's sing it together. The king and I Listen to the words now. Walk down life's road together. Together. Where many people are passing by. The greatest one and I
his own. 